Being a geek is all about being honest about what you enjoy and not being afraid to demonstrate that affection. It means never having to play it cool about how much you like something. It's basically a license to proudly emote on a somewhat childish level rather than behave like a supposed adult. Being a geek is extremely liberating. Those were the words of Simon Pegg. I'm Luke Hector, and you're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast. Today's episode takes on a much more happier note. Well, for the most part, anyway. Kicking off with my first impressions of Lost Legacy Second Chronicle and Jamaica, we get to my discussion topic on whether metagaming is good within the hobby, and then to make up for last week's negative Nancy list, we're going for top 10 surprises in board games for me. Hello, welcome again. It's the 12th of May 2015 and this is episode 30. I never thought I'd be getting to anywhere near 30 episodes for the podcast and obviously I'm not going to stop here. But when I started off this thing, it was literally like really basic microphone, really basic setup, didn't really know anything about it. And let's face it, I'm still probably a newbie now, but I never figured it would go this long. You know, 30 episodes now, a member of the Dice Tower Network, known on Twitter. It's just really cool to be doing this as well as be part of one of the best communities that there is. Because let's face it, when it comes to board games, yeah, you get some vocal people, but in the end, board gamers are a pretty damn good, cool community. We all help each other out, we're all willing to share our views and opinions and passion about board games, but we're not really like getting on anyone's case here it's not like if someone doesn't particularly like anything that somebody else likes you know they're not hating them for it well for the most part there have been one or two people that i've seen who uh unfortunately for some reason you know the minute you say their game's not fantastic that they like they think you've just you know insulted their youngest child or something i don't know but i digress but this episode is going to be much more happy, just to make up for last week's little more negative list of my top 10 worst games, which I still stand by them. They are my top 10 worst games, although maybe maybe uh, Study in Emerald should have hit that list and maybe just knocked Mighty Coral off it just, I don't know. But it was still, those are 10 games I really didn't like. And it's been fun to hear people's responses to it and get a little bit of shtick for it with the whole sort of like case of, ah, you know, know, hang on, wait a minute, you're talking positively about a game? That doesn't normally happen. Which I'm kind of confused as to how I seem to be getting this, uh, shall we say, stigma across the group, considering this is now the 30th episode, and I've only done two top 10 lists that are actually considered negative. But, oh well, (laughs) people will focus more on the negative than the positive, I guess. But we're going to balance things out. Well, actually, it's already out of balance, shall we say. I mean, like I said, 2 to 30. But we're going to do a happier list later. My top 10 surprises to basically say what games I came across that I didn't think were going to impress me that much. And I had a bit of a negative intro to them. And then suddenly, whoa, hang on a minute. There's more here than meets the eye. And I want to try this more. You know, quite a cool list. Quite a hard one to put together. But I look forward to sharing that with you later. 
But of course, the happiest note to happen in this month is the 28th to the 31st. I am going to be at Birmingham NEC Hilton, uh, whatever it's called, the Hilton Metropole Centre, I believe it is, where the UK Games Expo is being hosted yet again. Last year I went and it was a blast. I really enjoyed it. It was great to meet all these personalities from Twitter and other board game clubs that I've only spoken to over the internet and actually get to game with them in person. Although... There were a few little teething problems with the organisational skills at the Expo with it being a bit too popular for its own good and I probably made a bit of a mistake joining the Android Netrunner regional tournament. Not that it wasn't fun, I mean I love Android Netrunner, it's one of my favourite games, but to play it for 8-9 hours solid when you're not actually that great at the game, it kind of, maybe I should have not gone in for that tournament. But hey, I learned something from it. I learned a few new skills and what, you know, how to avoid certain pitfalls in my deck design and when I'm playing. So I suppose it was useful in a sense. But it would have been nice to have just met other people and just did more gaming in general. So this time, there are no tournaments. There are no other commitments. Well, I might give Games Quest a hand to cover their lunches or something. I don't know. Nigel, I'm sure, will get on in touch with me about that. But other than that, I have no distractions. I'm going there by myself because, unfortunately, my girlfriend can't make it now. I was hoping to bring her along, show, him what, show her what it's like. But maybe I'll get to do that next year. But unfortunately, her work commitments mean she can't get the time off. And, well, work's always more important. I always say to people that you've got to focus on your priorities. Board gaming is great. It's fantastic. But in no way should it impact on the biggest priorities in your life, whether that's your work, your family, your kids, whatever it is, you know, those things have to come first. But I'm still looking forward to it. No tournaments. I'm just going to be gaming all weekend. I'm going to be going around the stores, meeting everybody, no doubt emptying my wallet at various opportunities, checking out all these new games that are being playtested there. There's a tabletop gaming magazine, I believe, has been released at this expo that I look forward to checking out because I think the board gaming world needs one other than just Spielbox. You know, something a bit more readily available and maybe a bit more tightly close to the UK, maybe. And the one that's been released there should be pretty good. So we'll see how that goes. But... Unfortunately, it's still only the 12th of May, and it still just feels like forever until the 28th of May. Come on, stupid time. Get a move on. But I can't wait. I'll be there Thursday afternoon, bright and early to check in. Probably just going to enjoy myself in the swimming pool for most of the time on Thursday, because I doubt most people will arrive at that point. But if anybody's there on Thursday evening, I will be there at the Hilton Hotel, probably... I'm kind of still sorting out whether somebody's going to share the extra bed I've got in my room because now I've got a spare and whether I'll stay in the hotel or move somewhere a bit cheaper. But saying that, last year staying at the Hilton was very useful. So maybe I'll just cut my losses, you know, put it down to experience and just, you know, stay at the Hilton because at least it was convenient. And, you know, to have the health suite there is also nice because, you know, you can board game as much as you like, but occasionally you need a break. And the swimming pool and the gym is my perfect way to relax, really. Any form of exercise is the way I do things. So I look forward to it. Hope to see you there. Give me a bell if you are there. Just tweet me, you know, post on my Facebook group, whatever. See if you can contact me. Hopefully we'll actually have some internet this time, though, because last year I remember a couple of gaming rooms were devoid of the internet. So I do hope we have some way to communicate, but if it does get in the way, oh well, it gets in the way. We can't help it. 
but I'm just hoping that there is some way to get a better signal in that place compared to last time, particularly as now 4G seems to be sweeping around a lot of places, so maybe that's improved by phone signal. I've no idea. But I'm going to try and update as much as I can while I'm there, and before the next podcast is out, I will have already been there and done that and bought the t-shirt, so I'll be able to give my sort of views and findings on the next episode. Right, I've rambled on for long enough. Let's get on with a couple of quick pieces of news and then my first impressions. Not much in the way of board gaming news at the moment, but the two snippets I want to comment on just quickly is, firstly, Bezier Games are hinting at a new digital offering in the works for their app lineup. Now, it's not exactly a massive secret. They posted a giant tweet picture with the Android logo and the Apple logo with the same sort of uh, floor tile layout that their tiles in Mad King sorry, the castles of Mackin Ludwig have in their tiles. So uh, it's probably no surprise that it's going to be Madkin Ludwig coming to the iOS and Android. This should be interesting because Suburbia was a decent port to the platforms, but it did have its fair share of bugs and it still has its fair share of synchronization issues, but all in all it wasn't too bad a port. It would be nice if they could just learn from their mistakes on that one and get this one nice and finely tuned. But if it is Mad King Ludwig, that will be a really entertaining iOS app. I've got the board game and it is very a very good game, much like Suburbia. So a decent app, I will certainly be up for that. Stronghold Games are making a new version of their very popular Survive lineup with Survive in Space. It's essentially, or I think it's called Survive Space Attack, the actual title of it, and essentially it's going to be much the same way as the original Survive, which involved you rescuing your guys off an Atlantean island before it eventually sunk, but instead you're going to be on a big space station, and there's going to be aliens attacking, and presumably the space station is going to fall apart in a much a similar way. But there'll be other things like fighter ships and weapon systems and various special player powers and all sorts of evolving alien creatures to spice the game up a bit. I'm not entirely certain whether this franchise really needed a space theme. I mean, one of the appealing aspects of Survive Escape from Atlantis is that it's very simple. It's a good gateway game. It's a re-implementation of the, the original 1980s classic Escape from Atlantis, which I used to love as a kid. And it just works really well as a nice... I say harmless, there's certainly been enough uh, elements of tears and rage and God knows what else when playing that game, particularly with anybody I know, but it's a really cool game. But to have this sort of space theme on top, I don't know, it'll probably be good, but I can see this turning into very much a gamer's version of Survive. Survive you could teach to most people and they would probably get it, even if you've included a few expansions, well maybe not the squid, but certainly the dolphin and various other things is pretty easy to grasp. This one looks like it's going to be a little bit more on the complex side, but will it still be fun? Well, we'll just have to wait and see what happens. So, first impression time. Let's start with the happiest of the two, and that's Jamaica. 
Jamaica by Asmodee is a game that has been on my hit list to try for ages. I had never heard of this game in the first place before the Dice Tower started completely broadcasting the fact that this game existed. I mean, let's face it, most people have probably never even heard of this game before the Dice Tower mentioned it, and all of a sudden it's now a really popular one. But, I don't know, maybe it was popular before, but let's face it, I never knew it existed before the Dice Tower mentioned it. Z Garcia and Sam Healy had this in their top 10 of their top 100 games of all time, so I figured it's got to be at least worth a try. And finally on Monday, I did get a chance to try this game and see it for myself. And, to be fair, it's a good game. I don't. I would never put it in my top 10, certainly no, that's never going to happen. But what essentially it is, is that it's a very light racing game in which you take control of pirate ships and you sail around these islands collecting various bits of treasure that might give you a special ability or more points or even cursed points. You constantly attack each other, I mean really constantly, especially in a 5 or 6 player game. You just you shooting cannon at each other, rolling dice to see who wins the fight, and you nick each other's gold and food. And as well as that, it's got this cool little system where you roll two dice, decide which dice is going to be your day dice and which is going to be a night dice, and then you've got these cards which show a day and a night action, whether it's collect food, collect things, move, that sort of thing. And you basically base the die on that. So you, if you want to move really fast, you'll put the dice on maybe the day time so that your day movement action is really fast that kind of thing and everybody's got these other cards and you only have a limited hand size the really cool thing with the cards though i mean well the game in general it looks gorgeous the board is really colorful the cards have got gorgeous artwork on them and even better if you put them in a line it actually makes a giant panoramic picture that's a nice just nice little gimmick but it just makes the artwork stand out even more the tokens are really good quality, pretty much everything about the game, even the box, is pretty high quality. The only, I suppose, my only nitpick with it is that treasure map rulebook. Really was, it was an okay gimmick, I suppose, you know, ooh, it's a treasure map, yay, it's lovely, look at this, pirates and treasure maps, it looks so authentic. Yeah, it's also the most annoying rulebook to ever try to read. If you ever tried to read one of those ordnance survey maps, particularly when you're in the car, you're traveling with your dad in the country and he refuses to ask for directions or something, you know, all he's got is this giant map covering the entire front of the windscreen or saying, no, I can figure this out, I don't need to stop anywhere. Well, it's a bit like that when you're trying to check any rule in the, well, I can't even call it a book, it's basically a giant sheet. And, okay, fair enough, it was trying to keep with the theme. But seriously, publishers, don't ever do this again, okay? Because it was just really... It, I mean, we laughed at how stupid the girl who brought the game to it looked, trying to constantly find a rule. But, yeah, I'm, seriously, don't do it again. I don't think anybody has done it since, you know, giant <laughs> rule shits like that. And, thank God, really. But the game itself. The game itself is good, chaotic fun. It's very light. It is pretty much, you know, dice rolling. So there's an element, well, a high element of luck in the game. And it's very light. You're just rolling dice against each other, see who wins fights and that. But the rules are really easy. This is a pretty good gateway game for racing. Kind of on par with the sort of Formula D line. Although I reckon I would enjoy this one more than Formula D because of the whole pirate thing. I mean, let's face it, Formula 1's not that exciting a spectator sport anyway. But this one is just fine and light. Very good very well produced game easy mechanics to learn everybody just gets into it with the whole you know 
shooting each other with cannons and picking up treasure and that or whether they want to grab tons of gold or book it for the the finish line like i did that kind of thing and i mean i got to the finish line and i did win but you don't have to finish first to win you know there were some other decent ways to win and yeah i mean it's a fine game i got no you know i've got very little bad thing to say about it it's not the best game ever made i'm certainly not going to put it in my top 10 but if I did the top 100, if I ever play enough games to warrant a top 100, then, yeah, I'm sure Jamaica would probably find a place in there because it's just nice, harmless fun. But, like I say, will it make my collection? I don't know. Maybe it's a bit too light for me to make the collection. But then saying that, I do have some friends who really just prefer light games, so maybe I might reconsider that in the future. I'll have to wait and see on that one. Now we're on to Lost Legacy Second Chronicle, and this one's a bit more of a mixed bag. Lost Legacy was this card game that came out recently, well, it originally came out in Japan, but then it got re-released over here by AEG, and it was kind of like a more advanced version of Love Letter. It used the exact same rules of draw a card, play a card, with various special abilities, but the added twist was that you were trying to find this card called the Lost Legacy, in the first base set it was called the Starship, and... As well as doing the classic, trying to eliminate the other players, if the deck ran out, you went into this investigation phase and you had to figure out whether the Lost Legacy was in someone else's hand, or whether you had it in yours, obviously, or whether it was in one of the Ruin cards, which were these face-down ones that might appear during the course of a game. So I had to add a little element of deduction in there. And I like it. I prefer it to Love Letter. It doesn't hit the table as often as I would like, but I really quite like this game as a nice little filler. Now, it started with the Starship, and then the Flying Garden came out, and now we've got Second Chronicle, which brings us Vorpal Sword and White Gold Spire. Basically, these expansions are essentially just another deck of cards with a different type of legacy, and usually some twists on the rules and different special abilities. Now, the original set was already pretty good. Flying Garden, I think, as a standalone set, is my favourite of the four, these two are a bit more of a mixed bag. The Vorpal Sword set has some nice abilities on the cards, and I do think the Vorpal Sword is my favourite legacy item of all time, because whereas all the other legacies are mostly just, you either get points, I'll come to that later, or you just try and keep it in your hand until the end, the Vorpal Sword, as well as having that ability, also has one where you can shuffle it back into the deck and try and eliminate another player quite handy when you get it really early in the game and you don't want to hang on to the legacy for the entire game and that that's really cool it just gives you that nice little choice and gives you a chance to eliminate another player in a fairly thematic way so Vorpal Sword certainly takes my vote for the best legacy out of them as for the cards not well they're okay but there is one card in particular that really needs to be taken out and burned and that's called that Lord of Rot card the new number two most of the cards have a special ability and some of them may enable you to win the game there and then, but they usually rely on you to have figured out something at that point, whether it's like whether legacy is in someone's hand in that. So at least they involve a little bit of skill as well as a little bit of luck. The Lord of Rot simply goes as soon as some all the out of all the discard cards available, if there are exactly three cards with X on them, which is X is like they went they ranked from one to eight and then X. If there are exactly three cards with X in the discards, you play that card and you auto win. How stupid is that card? Seriously, we played two games with that set of cards. Both times, the same person won using the Lord of Rot. And 
there was very little thing there was practically nothing you could do to stop it you know it's not like you know the cards in his hand and you're not going to not play the X cards because in the end you are trying to eliminate people so it's just a silly auto win card and one that I will never play with if I if I get this these copies then I'm never playing with that Lord of Raw it is going to stay in the box or it's going to get burned so I never have to see it again but other than that the Vorpal Sword is okay the I mean, I'll use it, and I really like the Vorpal Sword from it. So it's it's above average, that set. Not as good as the Starship or the Flying Garden, but it's okay. The weak link here is White Gold Spire, though. The White Gold Spire basically has a legacy that just says, if you've got this at the end of the game, you score a bonus 10 points. Now, what are you on about with points? Well, basically, the rules are, if I can remember these right, is that most of the cards involve you flipping up and down cards in the discard piles, whether face up or face down. When you get to the investigation phase, you add up the points that are in your discard pile based on what the ranks are. And getting the Legacy White Gold Spire gives you another 10. If you happen to have also found the... um, I can't remember what it is, like Street Peddler or something like that, I can't remember. But the number one card, he gives you a bonus 90 points if you have the Legacy as well, which basically just equates to auto-win. Why it says plus 90 points, I don't get it, but, oh well, silly numbers. But this one's just a very boring set, because the other sets have you going at each other, trying to eliminate each other from the game, particularly the Vorpal Sword set. I would say there's more elimination in that set than there is in the other two. But with... This one, it's just flip cards face up and down. I mean, that's just boring. You know, we're not trying to play a game here where we're just flipping cards all the time. We're trying to, you know, eliminate other players as well and maybe, you know, do some tricksy stuff. But in here, it's just flip this up and down, maybe exchange this. And yeah, there's only one card in there that allows you to exchange hands. So if somebody has got the legacy, then chances are they're going to hold on to it for the whole game and have no problem, you know, keeping it. So this one really doesn't work for me. Now that's not to say that all the cards that are bad in this second chronicle are really bad. Because whereas I don't think these two sets stand alone very well compared to the other two sets, they do have some cards that I reckon would mix well with other sets. For starters, I would use the Vorpal Sword as the chosen legacy no matter what cards I'm using. That's just a given. But there are some cards in here, including some of those flip up and flip down ones, that do work with other cards in the older set. So I think this set is more to be. There's more to gain from this set by mixing the cards with your original ones to create the sort of deck build your own 16 card ultimate legacy deck. And it's going to get more ridiculous from this point because there's already the third chronicle coming out later this year, the Grail and the Staff of Dragons. You know, I, what more can they do with this? But. Oh well, we'll see where it goes. And in the end, it's a cheap game, usually about, what, like seven or eight quid, the same cost you paid for Love Letter. So you're not exactly losing out on the money, even if there is one set, even if you don't like the West West Gold Spire at all, you're not losing much money by just going for the Vorpal Sword one. So I say get it if you're a big fan of the game, but other than that, you're probably better off sticking with the original two if you're just trying to get one set and stick with that. Okay, time for my discussion topic, which, if you're new to the podcast, is basically just an excuse for me to either rant or just rabbit on for about, say, 10 or so minutes, talking about a specific topic in the gaming industry, and today I'm tackling metagaming. 
If you're in the gaming business, you know what metagaming is by now. But for the newbies, that is essentially in simple terms using out-of-game information or resources to affect your in-game decisions. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that you use out-of-game information to win the game better, like you might in... Roleplay games, for example, if you have already read most of the monster manual, then when another DM puts the monster up against you, you already know its weaknesses. That's an example of using out-of-game knowledge to win in-game. But metagaming can also apply to just generally how you play. Even if it's not the most optimal decision, you might, let's say, in a game of... um, Twilight Imperium 3, if somebody betrayed you on a previous game then chances are you might in your game go after them first because you remember what they did to you before and the same could apply for something like resistance and uh, one night werewolf that kind of thing you think that just because that guy has lied to you about three times in the past it's going to happen again and it will have an effect whether this is good or bad really does depend on you your group and the reason you're metagaming i don't like metagaming when If we go back to that RPG example, you use the out-of-game knowledge to win in-game. That's the wrong way to tackle metagaming. You know, that's... You're more interested in trying to win than you are in enjoying the game. And if you do... I know you can't help it sometimes. I mean, if you're one of these people that likes to read all the background in Dungeons & Dragons and you just happen to pick up the knowledge and it just flicks back into your memory when someone else uses it, then, you know, you can only do so much to wipe it from your memory entirely. But if you deliberately use it, that's something I have a bit more of a problem with. You know, you're supposed to enjoy the game, and ideally you want a game to surprise you, to essentially, what's the phrase I'm looking for, you know, to to give you something new that you're not expecting. That's what I like about games like Descent and Imperial Assault and such, and, you know, those sort of dungeon call games, the fact that you don't know what's coming around the corner. You know, outside of game, sure, I know that a Stormtrooper is fairly weak, and sure, I know that Darth Vader is a bit of a badass when he gets into combat, but, you know, that's not... Everybody sort of knows that if they know anything about Star Wars, but I'm also not going to... If somebody knows nothing about Star Wars and is playing Imperial Assault with me, I'm not going to then tell the bloke, all right, you really need to avoid Vader. You know, let him find the surprise out for himself. You know, I can give him a friendly warning, but I'm not going to tell him the extent of what Vader can do. So it's little things like that. In But most metagaming isn't really a problem. The Twilight Imperium 3 example, the reason I thought of that game is because I have an issue, well, not an issue, um, a situation with this at the moment. A During my 36-hour gaming marathon I did last year for Tabletop Day, we the last game I played was Twilight Imperium 3. Yeah, I know, after been up for over 30 hours you play Twilight Imperium 3 work that one out but I played in a big game of Twilight Imperium 3 with some friends and a bloke who I don't see very often he's usually quite busy he's usually overseas and that but he was there and we had we were sitting next to each other and we had a little gaming truce you know not to attack each other I I usually tend to play peacefully in these sort of games, but I will defend myself. That's kind of the way I play these uh, conflict-style games, rather than be the initial aggressor. But other players were having their own little feuds and doing their own thing. But I then had a chance to get ahead of the crowd because I picked up an objective card that said take control of an opponent's home base. And I wasn't going to go and touch any of the ones on the opposite side of the table because they were too far to far to reach. And the one to the left of me was already in a battle with the other bloke to his left and had a pretty sizable defense force, so I didn't really want to tick him off. But then I had my truce friend to my right, who whose base looked fairly 
fairly accessible and it had other artifacts on it which were getting us more points and it's like if I take that base I could really pull out a good lead so what did I do I did the only honorable thing I betrayed his trust and then basically gone take took his home planet nicked his artifact and then skadooshed <laughs> so you know he now remembers this game for like all this time we haven't played since in a Twilight Imperium free game because it's not easy to get it to the table but the next time we play I am sitting on the opposite table to him because I know exactly what he'll do he will come after me with vengeance he has not forgotten that I did that and fairly deservedly so but it does mean that the next time I play Twilight Imperium free I am likely going to pick one of the alien races that's good at defense and focus entirely on protecting myself rather than actually ticking anyone off because of this incident that happened before it's not involved in that it won't be part of that game but it's out of game knowledge that's going to affect people's actions that i don't mind if you don't take it to extreme levels by just doing nothing but beating down on someone game after game after game just because of one incident that's going too far but if you know little light-hearted things like that are fine in, in any case it actually makes the game more fun to an extent it's great playing games like Shadows of a Camelot and the Resistance and One Night Werewolf when you have players who regularly are very good liars so you know that the players already suspect them before they've even opened their mouths you know and it, it doesn't necessarily influence the victim you know the victory of the game but it certainly does make it quite a lot of fun to just listen to all this banter and that's what it's at the end of the day most metagaming is just banter between friends you remember these games that you played that you obviously enjoyed because you wouldn't have been well what 90 percent of the time you would have enjoyed them they would have been good experiences and that's why you're remembering the experience now in this next game Granted, there will be the occasion where there was an experience that didn't go so well, but then if there was an experience that didn't go so well, then to be honest, why would you be playing the game again? Why would you necessarily be playing the game with that person if it was that bad an experience? You know, I have been screwed over in games because of actions out of game, but I take it, you know, tongue in cheek. It's just a laugh at the end of the day. I've had my girlfriend actually turn Survive Escape from Atlantis into a co-op game by which I mean co-op as in three versus one, and basically I had to deal with three people trying to hunt down all my sailors on the island. Granted, that was not my favourite game of Survive I've ever played, but, you know, that's what happens when you play with your uh, girlfriend, I guess, <laughs> or your boyfriend. It's going to have this kind of effect, and you have to accept that you are going to get screwed over if they even so much as look at you in the wrong way. Now, that's that's essentially, you know, the way of metagaming. I mean, there are, there, you can use it to your advantage, but you can also just use it for a laugh. I don't like using it for an advantage. Um, even simple abstract games like chess, for example, there's a, I believe, I can't remember their names, but it's sort of known that one competitor likes to use the four win move, um, where you can win the game in four moves. Somebody out there really likes to use that opening all the time, just in case it pulls off. So naturally, if somebody already knows he plays like that, then the next competitor is going to think, oh, hang on, I better defend against that before he's even had a chance to try it. And let's go to a bit more of a recent example. How about Android Netrunner? You, that is a two-player dueling game. So if you're used to playing 
uh, a particular faction, say Wayland Corporation, then you know that Wayland is very good at screwing you over with meat damage, it's good at responding very harshly to when you nick their agendas, they have lots of uh, advanceable ice that can get stronger over time, and they're generally quite, ooh, they're quite aggressive, and of course, who can forget Scorched Earth? So, naturally, when you play against anybody who's playing Wayland, that's going to be the first thing on your mind. Out of game knowledge, that helps you in this next game, even if it doesn't help you. Because this can work against you if you're not careful. You might, you know, somebody could use this to your advan- to their advantage, particularly when I mention things like the resistance and that. If somebody thinks that I'm just, you know, always telling the truth, and to be fair, I can bluff and lie pretty well in these bluffing games, that's why I like them, but you should always window dress the truth as much as you can. I'm trying to think of the... I think it was a... I think the master said it in Doctor Who one time or something. It's like, for... For a lie to succeed, it must be shrouded in truth. And then that actually makes a lot of sense, because if you just lie constantly, then nobody will believe you ever. Uh, But if you can hide a little lie in a ton of truth, it becomes so much more believable, because everybody's already believing everything else that's there, which they should, because it's true. So that's how I tend to do the bluffing games. You know, don't Sheriff of Nottingham up a bit like that. You know, I will tell the truth most of the time, but then just on that one occasion, do an outright lie, complete and utter outright lie. But because people sort of get that impression of the truth giver and that, they avoid it and don't look in my bag. So you've got to time it right. And metagaming can work to this advantage as well. Take the, well, One Night Werewolf. You know, I normally tell the truth. I'm normally on the villager team. Yeah, I'm, I'm there. I'm with the people or something. Then I draw a werewolf. Okay. Well, everybody thinks I tell the truth, so that's the perfect time to suddenly come out and lie my face off. It can work both ways, so it's not like anybody who metagames instantly has a you know is going to win because you can if you know the outside knowledge as well and two people are metagaming against each other, then you can make it backfire really nicely against them so that's the general thoughts on it in the end, it's impossible not to metagame. In the end, you know all this information. It's not like you can blank your mind of everything that goes on outside the board game itself. And to be honest, if you are, then seriously, you know, priorities. But in the end, there's going to be outside knowledge. There's going to be outside influences that are going to affect every game you play, particularly when you play with friends. And that's the fun of it. You can't escape it. It's not going to go away, but it's also not going to destroy the game either. In some cases, it will make it more fun. So you just have to take it with a light you know a light pinch of salt and just treat it as a light-hearted way of making a game even better just try not to abuse it too much okay now for my favorite part of the podcast the top 10 i love top 10 lists doesn't matter if i'm doing them or other people are doing them i love a top 10 list it's why i'm pretty much addicted to the dice tower top 10s granted there's many times i won't agree with what's on their lists but that's the joy of everybody's diversity when playing games now last time i did the top 10 worst games granted it was a negative rant and people enjoyed it some people disagreed that's what I expect. I am not the guru of games. I expect people to disagree with my list from time to time. And I want to know why you disagree and what you actually prefer. It's called constructive criticism. It's called fun debates. It's not called flame wars. That's not what I'm trying to promote with these things. But let's balance it out this week because 
This time it's a happier list. It's my top 10 surprising games. Now, when I say surprises, I'm not talking about like an incident in a game that was a surprise. So not like a Descent 2.0 dungeon crawl where you go through a door and it's like, oh, there's a big spider there. Um, to be honest, I wouldn't class that as a good board game in surprise. I'd class that as a potential heart attack moment. But the what I'm talking about here are games that I started playing with the sort of initial thought that I'm not going to like this that much or it doesn't look right or this is weird you know what am I expecting here but then suddenly it wows me whether it's because of innovation or the fact that the game is just great or the fact that I expected it to be so horrible and even yeah even if I thought it was horrible and it turned out to be okay that's still a surprise because normally I can tell if I'm going to like a game before I play it but it's nice when a game you know completely destroys my initial impression of it and makes me write whoa hang on a minute this is good I'm liking this because that makes me enjoy and appreciate the game a lot more so these are the top 10 games that have surprised me and this doesn't necessarily mean that my number one is the game I enjoy the most out of these 10 we are talking about the level of surprise that it gave me when I encountered and played this game so let's get a move on Okay, we're kicking off with Asmodee, or Labellad. I'm not sure if that's the way to pronounce it, but Labellad is the uh, publisher who brought it to my attention over in the UK. I think Asmodee brought it in the US. This game I really like. I mean, I've got this... I had it rated as an 8 on Board Game Geek. Now it's a 9. It's just grown on me. And even though the expansions for it have been a bit meh, not great, the initial game itself is still extremely cool and of really good quality. But the main reason that this game meets, makes my number 10 on the list is mainly because of the just complete, like, out of the blue surprise this had for me. Because I did not know this game existed until I got shown it. I did not hear of it, I'd not even heard the name, I couldn't tell what it was even by the front cover. It's like, huh? What on earth is this? And then somebody got out the big chunky dice of varying colours and all that cool artwork on all the magic cards and instantly Seasons became a massive surprise for me. And to be fair, as soon as I started playing it, I could tell that this was something I was going to enjoy, but I didn't realise I would enjoy it that much. I really like this game enough that if I did a top 100, this would easily make my top 20. I don't have a doubt about that. Don't know how high, whether it would make the top 10, I don't know, but certainly in the top 20. But I really enjoy this game, and it was just just the out-of-the-blue surprise. The fact that I never saw this game coming. I mean, granted, at the time when I did get to play this game, I was kind of new into board gaming in general, this new hobby. So, granted, I wasn't exactly full of information at that point. But certainly, I'd done a bit of research, looked up a few games, and Seasons just completely escaped my research. And then... I didn't know the designer, I didn't know the, you know, didn't even really know the publisher, you know, the Bellard. I don't think I'd played Dixit by then, so, you know, Asmodee was what they, who released it in the US, so I didn't know it was an Asmodee game at the time. But I played it, loved it the bits, the timer mechanic is amazing, the artwork is gorgeous, and those dice are the best dice I have seen in a game to date. Custom and huge and chunky they're just amazing. So number 10, Seasons. Great game. Number 9 is the game that, well, not reminding me, told me that 
board games were back and back with a vengeance. This was what got me back into board gaming at an early-ish stage. I've always played role-play games. I've always played like board games with the family, but they're old ones. And I've always you know played the occasional card game like Steve Jackson's stuff like Illuminati and Munchkin and that. But even though I've grown out of most of those now, but I didn't really know that all these other really good board games were existing. Certainly not in the 21st century. But I came across a game that my friend had of role, with role selection uh, by Fancy Flight that just wowed me instantly. I did not realize board games had come into their own in this way, and that's why Citadels makes the list. Citadels is a game that, to be fair, not to cause a flame war here, I actually prefer to the new Libertalia remake. And, well, we'll see my reasons why in a review that I'm doing soon for Libertalia. But... I really enjoy Citadels as a game itself, but it just surprised me that these board games that I was used to playing with the parents, that and even these like really simple sort of light-hearted card games like Ninja Burger and Munchkin and that that I was playing with friends at university. Granted, I did the occasional trading card game, but I didn't count those. I was it was I I classed them as separate to board games in my you know narrow-minded viewpoint at the time. You know, I wasn't putting them in the same category because I figured card games had always been popular but Citadels just came out and showed me that these other types of games exist it got me interested in the hobby again and then you know it took a while from playing that to uh, getting back into it in this whole blog type of thing but it certainly made me go out and think oh whoa these games are actually pretty good now let's have a look at these things so even if not just for nostalgia it certainly deserves a place on this list number nine Citadels Number 8 was a big surprise because of the license that the game is using. Most games that use a license, from experience, particularly when it comes to computer games, tend to be bad. Computer games in particular really are no good with licenses, particularly movie licenses. They just tend to screw those games up right royally and you can't really do much about it. With board games, it's a bit of a different story. Some games can be garbagey, but there are some movie license games and you know, other franchises that have done pretty well. And this one used the Warhammer license. And again, from experience, most card games and board games that I have played using the Warhammer license have been a bit meh or not particularly interesting. And I don't mean like Warhammer 40k and Warhammer itself, you know, they're awesome. But, you know, I'm talking about the board games that nicked the license. And But this one really sort of showed me that even though it only focuses on one aspect of Warhammer, and that's Chaos... It certainly showed me that, wow, okay, this is the best game using the Warhammer license I have played, and it's brilliant at how balanced it is with the asymmetrical nature of it. That's Chaos in the Old World. Chaos in the Old World has you taking control of one of the four gods of chaos and going for area control over this map that's actually made out of human skin, so it really does well on the theme and components. But each of the gods that you play plays in really differently from the others. You'll still have effectively your priests, your fighters, and your big guy. But, you know, if you're playing Corn, you're trying to kill everyone. If you're playing Nurgle, you're trying to control everything. If you're playing Zenith, you're messing around with spells. If you're playing Sinesh, you're doing all sorts of weird tricksy stuff. It's great how they all act so differently. And this one gets onto the list because that I was surprised to find that a game using this license 
had actually done it right because I'd had so much experience that were experiences that were bad from games nicking other licenses. So especially with Warhammer, you know, Warhammer's usually tended to get a fair bit of shtick with certain games. I mean, what was another game I played? Uh, Chaos Marauders or something like that, which I think used the Warhammer license. It's like, I think it did anyway, but even if it did, it was so tacked on, it didn't really matter. And I, I've heard mixed opinions about Blood Bowl Team Manager and that kind of thing, but this one just, wow, you know, good going. Chaos in the Old World. Number 7 was one of those games that was hyped about, then it was slated, then slightly hyped, then slated again. It was on a very much a roller coaster ride before its initial release, and that was because people heard about the game, heard the name, and saw the front cover and thought, yes, this is going to be a massively good Amerifrash combat game with cool magic and abilities and that. And then people found out it was actually a Euro cube building, bag building game and instantly started, well, hey, what? This is not what I expected. What's going on? And I feel the game got too much bad buzz because of that. I mean, granted, it should have maybe been, you know, advertised a bit better, but certainly I don't think that was a reason to judge the game harshly. But when I played Hyperborea, wow, I was thinking, okay, yes, I would have preferred it if it was an Amerifrashi-style game. But, uh, you know, I thought, well, I'll give it a try. It looks cool. The components are still awesome. And maybe I will still like it. You know, bag building is quite a fun mechanic. And we'll see how it goes. But I was kind of like, yeah, I suspect it will be okay, but nothing great. I really like Hyperborea. It surprised me at how enjoyable it was, despite being essentially a Euro bag building game. There's a lot of ways that you can approach the game. You've got multiple factions with multiple special abilities that you could decide to use at the start. You've got all the different technologies. You've got the gorgeous map. You've got all the sort of power-ups you might find. You've got six different ways to develop your civilization and actions, you know, whether you want to go for like high movement, high development, high tech, high combat, you know, you could balance it. There's so many ways to approach it. And even with five players, it actually didn't take that long as a game to finish because you only draw out three cubes each turn. So you've only got three actions you can do, really, and it doesn't take too long to figure out what they do because you draw them at the end of your last turn, so you've got the entire round to think about what you're doing. Granted, you might draw milk cubes out of the bag, but even then, it's not usually that bad. But this one really just surprised me about the fact that it was getting so much hype, and then everyone just turned their backs on it because it was a Euro game. And I played it and no, this is not right. There's no reason to bash it just because it's a Euro game. I'm not saying the game's perfect, but well, I, you know, I got sucked into the slating of it beforehand, and I thought, okay, this probably won't be that great. But no, this wowed me, and this is still in my collection, and probably will be for a good long while. So Hyperborea makes my number seven. Number six is a game that I have raved about on previous 2013 lists and also Eurogame lists as well. I actually considered this to be the best game that came out in 2013 when all things considered. 
it was a case that it ticked all the boxes it was cheap it had variety it had depth it had good artwork it had good components it would good st- tactical and strategic depth it really did you know surprise me at just how good this game was when when you look at the front cover and think about that it's a sort of kind of like a victorian steampunky style euro game it's like you know, i'm not expecting a lot from this but nope spirium really surprised me spirium packs a lot into that small box and cheap cost spirium is a worker placement game where you're putting workers in between cards rather than on top of them nine cards will be laid out in a grid and refreshed from round to round they'll have technologies people and buildings that you can get and the idea is is that you lay your person out to try and claim the card but you don't claim the card until you take the person back off and depending how many other meeples are surrounding the card depends on how expensive it is or how much money you get if you decide to just earn some money it's got some really good mechanics in it it flows smoothly it doesn't take very long it just ticks so many boxes but when you look at the name and when you look at the cover you don't think this is anything special at all until you get shown it and that's why it still remains in my collection because i in fact i need to get this to the table again soon i've kind of this is one thing about this list actually i'm starting to feel like very nostalgic for all these games that surprise me and yet i haven't got to the table in recent months so uh maybe i need to start a little bit of a revolution in that fact D. Brad Tolton, a designer that is responsible for my number 5, and for most of the games that use this type of artwork with all the pixelated graphics. I didn't know what to expect from Pixel Tactics until a friend of mine bought the game and showed me it. Now, we this is the mate who I tend to play my two-player games with, because he lives alone, I live alone, it's easy just for us to meet up and play these two-player games. But I thought the pixelated graphics were slightly off-putting at first. I thought, like, well, it's cool, it's gimmicky, but is this going to make the game feel a bit cheap? And then the mat comes out, which is just this folded-up sheet, and I thought, okay, cheap and cheerful, but we'll see how this goes. And then I get handed a deck of cards, which, you know, isn't that many cards unless you start expanding it to high level. I believe you just get, yeah, it's an identical deck of 25 cards. And it's like, okay, this seems okay, but we'll see how it goes. Wow, did this have so much variety in the game. I could not even fathom how much variety this packed into a 25-number card game. Basically, Pictal Tactics is a head-to-head game of tactical combat where you have a grid of nine again, but it's split up into three rows. You have the front uh, front line, I forget what it's called. Uh, you have the support in the middle, and you have the rear guard. Um, maybe it's called the front guard or front line? Oh, vanguard. That's it, vanguard. Vanguard, support, and then rear guard. And you've got three spaces in each row, and the hero will go in the middle of the support row. And you'll deploy your guys from the deck as you draw them into the other rows and fight your opponent with the intention of killing your opponent's hero. But the great thing with this is that each person that you have, each of the characters on these 25 cards, has five different abilities depending on how you use them. You have an ability in health value if it's chosen as your hero at the start of the game. You have an ability that goes off if it's your vanguard, an ability for support, an ability for rearguard, and a one-off sorcery ability if you just play it from your hand as a discard five different things that each of these 25 cards can do 
And depending which one you choose as your hero, that can affect dramatically how your game plays because your hero might be good at healing your other guys or your hero might be somewhat weak but gives loads of... Or it might be a combat killing machine in which case you don't want to protect him. You want him to get out there and start slapping people. It's just so much variety in just 25 cards. I really was blown away by the amount of variety this game had and it's really enjoyable. There's two different big box expansions now so I think you can get like 75 cards just from them and you've got these little mini expansions as well that add a few more. But, you know, it's not even an expensive game either. It's fairly cheap to get get hold of. But if you like two-player tactical dueling games, you owe it yourself to try this. I mean, granted, it will make you think so be prepared for a little bit of analysis paralysis at times. But, wow, I really got surprised by this one. Uh, you know, it's not my favourite game of all time, but the amount, it was the variety that surprised me. I kind of guessed that I would probably like it, but I did not realise just how much variety I was going to get. So, Pixel Tactics are worthy number five. Number four. Now, this game is unlikely to remain in the collection for much longer, but I'm still debating on this one. However, that's not because I don't like the game. It's just, you know, I can only have room for so many games, and because this one's a co-op, there's a lot of competition for decent co-ops. But this one surprises me because I'm not a big fan of historical games. History was a subject I didn't like at school. We just learned about Victorians, Victorians, Victorians. And we never got to learn about any cool stuff. And so after year eight, when you had the chance to give up them for a different humanity, I gave it up and focused on geography within an instant. So I've never been one to dwell on the past. I've never been one to learn about that much history. I know it's not something to be proud of, but that's just the way I am. I prefer the present and the future to the past any day. So most historical themed games don't tend to excite me that much. Some of them I enjoy, but, you know, Memoir 44, for example, I'm not desperate to play it because I'm not that interested in World War II. I'm not a big fan of Twilight Struggle because it's the Cold War and my knowledge of the Cold War derives entirely from watching James Bond movies. So you can tell how limited that is already. But this game, being historical themed, I still enjoyed and enjoyed more than I expected I would ever do considering the subject matter. But kudos to Academy Games, Freedom the Underground Railroad makes my number four because I enjoyed it. It's very tense, very difficult, but despite being about the abolitionist movement and taking a very controversial topic, it handles it really well and it produces a decent game. Again, there are co-ops that I prefer to this one. But for a game that I expected to walk into and be bored to tears with, I actually was interested in reading the history on the cards and playing the game. It really did surprise me. This is a game I thought I would hate, but then turned out to be one that I liked and would happily play again, even if it doesn't stay in my collection. So, you know, probably my favourite historical themed game I've played, Freedom the Underground Railroad, deserves to be my number four surprising game. Number three. Well, number three is surprising just because of the box cover and the name alone. This is published by someone actually local to me, actually, Grublin Games Publishing. They are based in Cornwall, which is next door to where I used to live in Somerset. And the, you know, the people there are nice. They've been to the UK Games Expo and shown off their stuff. Decent publisher, and I hope they go on to great things. 
But this one surprised me because I just looked at it and thought, what in the world is this game? The front cover looks like a cross between, I don't know, a, the Disneyland castle and something out of Alice in Wonderland. I don't know. It's really bizarre. It's got a, you know, it's got this little theme park look to it. It's got this blimp that looks like a bee on it. It's got roads and various, like, little pretty flowers everywhere, hot air balloons, water, and various like, random buildings that looks really futuristic, and a neon sign with the title Waggle Dance. You look at the front cover of this game, and you're just like, what in the world is this? I've got no idea. And even the name itself is based on a dance movement that bees do when they're trying to communicate to each other where nectar is. And you're just like, what the hell is this game? Oh my god, this is going to be a failure in the making. Well, don't believe that for a second. This game is a worker placement, light worker placement game. I'd almost call this a gateway game. Where you are bees, you have dice that are your workers, and they're all effectively your worker bees. And you place them on cards, a bit like how Alien Frontiers and Kingsburg worked, but much simpler. And... You're trying to collect nectar, take it back to your hive, where you've got these little tiles, and you, they're cubes, and the nectar are different color cubes, but you get combinations of cubes, or you get like more of the same color, you get a certain amount, flip a tile over, and it becomes honey. First one to a selection of honey wins. It's really smooth, the mechanics are really easy to learn. I mean, I say gateway game, and I mean it. You could teach this as the first worker placement game that anybody sees. It's really not a difficult game. But it's very good components. Everything's colourful on the cards. The dice are all really nice because they, they're custom. So they've got custom font and, you know, a, work, a B symbol for the one. And you get loads of these dice. You get to roll lots of dice and do all this cool stuff with it. Granted, it's probably a bit simplistic for my liking, which is why it's not stayed in the collection. But I recommend this to anybody who needs a gateway worker placement game with a really obscure theme that they could probably teach their kids, because I reckon kids would get into this nicely. And it just surprised me from looking at the cover and the name, you're wondering what on the what in the name of all that's holy is this game and what is it about? It gives you such a weird impression when you look at the box and then when you start taking the pieces out, it's like, okay, this is interesting, but still, waggle dance, what on earth? Then you play the game and it, whoa, it just grabs you. This is a really nicely little design game and maybe the cover and the name is hurting it slightly even though to be fair the name is quite clever when you think about it you know waggle dance bees communicating to get honey and that it's very nicely thought out and quite clever but what on earth when you look at this game do you think when you see that cover it surprised me by that alone the fact that this game that could be so odd looking could actually be a really decent design game. So Waggle Dance number three. Number two. Well, I did a review of this recently, I believe in the latter part of April, so I bet that's not any clue to any of you at all, because I bet most of you don't pay that much attention to my blog. Shame on you. Well, this game surprises me because it was a simple filler, so I thought it would be meh, you know, not too bad. Then I found out the filler included auctions. And anybody who knows me at all knows that I hate auctions. 
I hate auctions in pretty much 95% of board games that I play. I cannot stand Paragrid. It made my top 10 worst games list, as you might remember. Most auction games I hate. They bore me, they take too long, they drag out. You know, Modern Art's another example, bores me. It's for sale. I I didn't mind, but again, it's boring. I don't like auctions. Oh yeah, 20th Century, that was another one. You know, again, boring. It's like, ugh. Really not a fan of auctions. Until this one came along, Biblios. Biblios is just something I kept hearing Z Garcia on the Dice Tower talk about constantly. He brings it up in at least two or three different lists. And I just thought, why am I going to like that game? It's got auctions in it. It's going to instant dislike for wanting to try the game out. But nobody I knew owned it, so it was never I was never going to get a chance to find out. But then it started intriguing me. I thought, could this actually be an interesting filler game? And the more I learned about the way the rules played and how simple the game was, it's like, maybe this could work. And so after Insomnia, earlier in April, when I helped out Games Quest to do their stall, I was allowed to take some games home as a kind of, you know, he doesn't pay me, but I take games. That's how I do it. I enjoy selling games. I enjoy talking to people about games. But it was a nice incentive to be able to say, can I have a couple of these games? And so I chose Biblios as one of them because uh, Yellow has just recently brought it out in a nice little print. And I tried it, learnt the rules in like five minutes, taught it to various people in pretty much five minutes. It is a simple game. And very much like For Sale, it plays in two halves where the first half is taking cards and the second half is uh, the auction bit. Wow! This is now one of my favourite fillers. It really is a smooth, quick game. You've got you know, the random, well not the random, the the chance that your categories that you're trying to collect are worth less or more points by the end of the game. You've got the, you know, fact that some of the cards are gold, which you need to buy other cards. But then you need gold, so in order to get the gold, you have to sell the other cards that you've been buying. So you've got to be really careful with your hand management. But the auctions are really quick in this game. Literally, you no know, nobody's bidding higher than, like, you know, six ever. And because there's so many cards in the auction pile, people know whether they want it or not. And people just really, you know, it doesn't take ages to think about whether you're going to bid higher or not. So you don't get the classic thing from like Power Grid, where because you're dealing with such high numbers and there's so much to think about in terms of the turn order and like nickel diming, that you're, you know, you're not there going 74. Doom, 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 doom. 75. Oh, just finish! You know, it's not like that bad. But in in this one, it's just quick. Three, four, no, nah, you have it. Go. Next one. Two, three, four, five. Got. Right, done it. Next one. And it just goes through at that kind of pace. It's really quick. But it's just really simple and good fun. It has made my list because it is the first game with auction mechanics that I like. That was as big a surprise as you can possibly get, bar my number one. So, number two, easy choice. Probably the first one I wrote down on the list, before even my number one, and that's Biblios. Well done. My first auction game that I like, Zegosir, you were right. And now, as a new feature of the top 10, here's some honourable mentions that didn't make the list. Amerigo, a, a nice, really cool Stefan Feld game, which already is a surprise to me because I'm not usually a fan of his games, but it produces a great experience with that very unique 
cube tower that dictates the possible actions that you do. Really underrated Stefan Feld game. Viticulture. Viticulture, I was already going to like the theme probably with the winemaking etc, but I didn't realise it would take the theme and run with it so well. It was a It's a very good Euro game and Tuscany makes it even better. I didn't think this would have such an impact, but wow, well done to Stonemaier Games for Viticulture. Concept. Concept, a simple little party game which is only simple in the fact of teaching the rules, but it's certainly not simple when you're trying to use those question marks and cubes to point to these various symbols and pictures on the board, trying to get your teams to guess the word that you're doing. More of an activity than the game, but it's still good fun. And from after just looking at this boring front cover and then this really like involved board, it really is nicely designed and it's a cool activity to boot. And finally, the Lord of the Rings LCG. Lord of the Rings, I, I like anyway, so that was not the surprise. The surprise was just how much I would enjoy this game based on the fact that I have only ever played it solo. Android Netrunner was my first LCG Avenger, so I already knew I'd like the model, but I thought, a game that I can only play solo? Because I don't know anybody who owns this game. I mean, if anybody in Portsmouth owns this game, please get in touch with me, I want to play it with you. But mainly I figured this would just be a solo game. Would I really get that involved? Wow, yes I did. I don't own every expansion, but I own quite a lot of them, and I'm really enjoying this game. Right, you've heard the last nine, you've heard my honourable mentions, which I'm going to try and do on every list now as a little bonus feature. But it's time for the number one, which game made my biggest surprise ever. And this one, I bet no one has guessed. If you've guessed it, then give yourself a pat on the back. But seriously, I don't think anybody would have figured that I'd put this as a top surprise. This one came out in 2014, so it's a recent game, designed by Tim Fowers, I hope I pronounced that right, um, but it was self-published as well. Most people don't even know this game exists. It's a very small game, I think it came out on Kickstarter, and it's a deck-building game, but not in the way you would expect it to be. This is basically what happens when you take deck-building and combine it with Scrabble, and that's paperback. Paperback you look at the cover and it's nothing special it's self-published which automatically makes you think oh okay you know self-publishing is a dangerous business but then you look at these cards and they're like different letters the alphabet and it's like okay so what are we doing here we're deck building to spell words right okay <laughs> let's see how this goes blimey this game is really well designed it's just it surprises me just on the theme alone. It's Scrabble with deck building. It's Dominion Scrabble. It's just weird in that sense, but it works really well. You buy the letters so that you can spell out longer words and get more points, but each letter you buy has a potential special ability with it that allows you to trash cards, get more points, substitute other letters, mess around with the deck. You know, it's like playing Dominion, but you're learning how to spell. It's improving your English skills. This is something that I would happily recommend to anybody who wants to teach their kids English. Because it's not a difficult game to learn, but if you want your kids to learn English and how to spell and create new words, this is a fantastic little game to do that with. I highly believe that. I strongly believe that. But this just surprised me because I just thought, 
this little weird game. What on earth is this? Letters, deck building with Scrabble. I just didn't know what to make of it when I first saw it. But the fact that it's just really nicely well designed. I mean, I haven't been able to find a copy of it, but hopefully I'll be able to maybe at the UK Games Expo because they'll be on the bring and buy sale. So I'm hoping that somebody's selling it secondhand. I'll probably grab it because it's just a neat little game and it's not that long I mean playing time says 45 minutes I reckon you can get it done in shorter time uh, with people that are gamers and that but it's just a neat little game and Scrabble with deck building it's just such an innovative concept you know I for 2014 I, I can't remember is this on the Dice Tower Awards for paperback sorry for let me just have a check a second I'll be right back and okay, I'm back again. Right, now, this, the, it is on the Dice Tower Awards, and I am part of the voting committee, so I'm looking forward to when we get round to voting on that properly. We've been in heated debates for quite a while now, but unfortunately it's not there under Most Innovative Game, which is a bit of a shame, really, because it really should be. But it is down there under Best Small Publisher and Best New Designer. And I really think that the this has a running for both categories. Now, there's some good games in those categories, so it's not an easy fight. But I think this one really needs to be put into the public eye because it's just so unique. This was easily my biggest surprise of 2014, and it is easily my biggest surprise to date. If another game can surprise me more than this, then I cannot wait for it. It's going to be like Christmas all over again. So, number one, paperback. Good job, Tim keep making some more games like this and you will go far. So that's my top 10 most surprising games. I hope that was a much more happier list for you in case you didn't like the negative one last week. But, you know, I don't like to rag on games. I enjoy them as much as the next person. But obviously there are going to be games you don't like. And some people don't like talking about the games they don't like. Well, I like talking about all games. So it doesn't matter in that respect. But that's it for me now. Uh, it's the 16th of May now because I'm trying to record these in multiple parts. Because it is a bit of a mission to record the entire podcast in one sitting. It is a bit of a mission. But this sort of two-pronged, three-pronged approach is starting to work quite well. I just tr- I just need to find the time to keep the podcast running. So, you know, this should work quite nicely. But for now, I'm going to get on with just chilling for today, pa- tidying up my game shelf and maybe testing out a new Kickstarter game that has come into my review collection that I need to do, something called, a, I, f- I think it's called Probis or something at the moment. I can't pronounce it, but it was called Asteroid Miner. So maybe that uh, um, is more prevalent to you. Game looks pretty good, although I have been told it's similar to Power Grid in space, which is a bit of a problem. So hopefully, who knows, maybe this will be my next big surprise of the year. Maybe this will knock number 10 off the list. So we'll have to see how that goes. But for now, I'm going to look highly forward to the UK Games Expo on the at the end of this month. I'm going to be there from the Thursday afternoon slash evening because I'm going to try and beat the traffic. So I'm going to get there nice and early on Thursday. I'll be in the Hilton Hotel itself on site and I'm going to be there till Sunday evening. So I hope to see you guys there. Give me a bell on Twitter, Facebook, email, whatever. Just get in touch. Tell me you want to play some games. Even just tell me you want to have a chat. If you're selling stuff or demoing stuff in the trade halls, 
just give me a bell. I'd love to chat to you. I'm there to solely meet people and game this time. No tournaments, no other commitments. I'm just there to have fun and game. Apart from obviously, you know, get information for the blog, etc. But that's, you know, that's a given. That's my job. But I can't wait for the expo. And I also can't wait for tomorrow evening because somebody, a friend of mine is going to show me a four-player game of Merchants and Marauders, which I have not had a chance to play yet. It's part, uh, you know, it's it's a game that should appeal to me, but we're going to find out. So I'm looking forward to that as well. But that's it for me rabbiting on. I'm going to make a move. So thank you for tuning in to episode 30. This hopefully will move on to 40. And then I look forward to celebrating the 50th episode. That will be a, you know, an good time in itself 100 if i can get to 100 i'm gonna be flabbergasted i'll be flabbergasted that i can get to 100 but that's it for me so thank you for playing games thank you for tuning in have a good weekend and i hope to see some of you in just a couple of weeks i appreciate you taking the time to listen to the broken meeple thank you for your continued support If you wish to check out more of my work, you can find my website at www.brokenmeeple.blogspot.co.uk. You can also find me on Twitter at TheBrokenMeeple, and also check out my Facebook page. The music used in this podcast has been kindly provided by CMA Music. I'm Luke Hector, you take care, and enjoy the hobby.